You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, we've come to the point in our catechism study where we're looking at escape and faith. It's kind of an odd way to put it, but in question 85, when we're looking at two questions today. So 85, it asks the question, after we've gone through the Ten Commandments and realized that we cannot keep any of them, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? Now, we've established the fact that that's what is due for our sin. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. God requires of us three things. Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. And immediately it becomes apparent that the things we do in worship, for example, the means of grace, are not just nice ceremonies. They're things that we do because we're Christian. These are things that God actually uses to strengthen the faith of his people. So we've seen how mankind in a fallen condition cannot and will not keep the commands of God. The larger catechism describes us as utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good. So that's the negative. And then it goes on to describe us as being wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and of the devil. So that's how we come into the world. To counteract that, to escape the wrath and curse that is so justly due to our sin, God requires of us those three things. We've also considered how every sin is damnable, but some sins are more heinous than others. Uh, The party's offended, the person's offending, the nature and quality of the offense, the time and circumstance of the offense, all these things enter into and aggravate our sins. So given our lost condition, what must we do to be saved? Is there any escape from divine wrath? And the answer is yes. We cannot escape the wrath and curse of God by anything we can or would do of ourselves. Now, this is not saying that we do nothing, but it does indicate that there's nothing man can do. It's not man's wisdom, not man's effort, not man's ingenuity. It's something God does and has us do. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. He's not even talking about our unrighteous deeds. Our best works are imperfect and defiled. They're like polluted garments. So anything we do can't contribute anything to our salvation. So God appoints certain things as the means of conveying and as the evidences of confirming our salvation. And isn't this interesting that God is the hidden God? Can't see him, he's invisible. He is pleased to hide himself and to work through these very humble, ordinary means to do a very extraordinary work. That's what's amazing to me. 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So there you have this idea of faith in Jesus Christ and the diligent use of the outward means, attending the preaching of the word, which our culture says is absolutely foolish. It's outmoded. We're an image-based society. Let's have pictures. Let's not have some guy up front preaching an authoritative doctrine. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And by the way, there is one of the great texts for the perseverance of the saints. If you believe, he says you, not that you will have eternal life. If you believe, he says you have it. And if it's eternal life, it can't be temporary life. So if you've been given it, you're eternal. It's life that will never end. Now. You will persevere. What God begins, he will accomplish. So any questions on this opening part? Okay. So as we said, God chooses, and this is the way he chooses to work, through appointed means and human agency. Doesn't have to. He could just save us. He could just translate us to heaven right now if he wanted to. That's not how he chooses to do it. With infinite wisdom, he decides to work through the appointed means and human agency over time progressively so that we were saved, are being saved, will be saved. In Christ, he's chosen some men to eternal life and the means thereof. This is what's interesting about the whole doctrine of predestination. He not only chooses those who are going to be saved, he not only appoints the end, but he also chooses and appoints the means to the end. So the fact that you're sitting here in Sunday school this morning is part of the appointed means that God predestined before the foundation of the world. This is one of the ways that he keeps us by his power through faith unto salvation. The constant teaching, preaching, reading, hearing, studying, meditating upon the word. That's how he does it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there you have this amazing interplay between the divine sovereignty and the human responsibility. And he even gives us the very will to work. So we work out our salvation. We attend church. We go to our closets. We strive to be godly people. And in the meantime, it is him working in and through us. So those who are chosen to salvation are also chosen to sanctification as the appointed way. This is the way that he appoints for us to be saved, growing in holiness, striving to keep his commands, failing every day, but hopefully getting better and better. God chose you, he tells the Thessalonians, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And this is one of the areas where if you don't see any evidence of sanctification going on in your life, you have to ask yourself a question, am I really saved? Because this is the way that he's appointed us unto salvation. The end and the means must not be separated in God's decree or in the execution of his decree. He decreed the end, salvation. He decreed the means to that end. And you will persevere. If you believe, you have eternal life. 
and that cannot be taken away from you. God will bring no one to glory except in the way of holiness, and this he determined from eternity. Whatsoever comes to pass, as difficult as that is to get our brains wrapped around, it is true. Whatsoever comes to pass, he's ordained. We're told in Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that's an important concept to grasp. Now, by holiness there, he doesn't mean perfection. That'll come in heaven. But by holiness, it means this pursuit of the kingdom and this pursuit of Christ-likeness, striving through all the means that he's appointed, these things, these tools that he's given to us to work on ourselves. By all these means, we're striving to become more like Christ. In his eternal decree... God determined to make us both holy and happy, not one or the other, but both, both to be saved and sanctified. As a matter of fact, you cannot be happy unless you're being sanctified. The only true happiness comes in true holiness. So he determined to make us both holy and happy. As he says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the goal, to make us holy and blameless. And so we see incremental progress in this life, but then at death, we're catapulted into perfect holiness, freed from every sin, and it's glorious. So the Lord first gives us faith and repentance, then he brings us to everlasting salvation. Faith toward, faith toward Jesus Christ, repentance toward God, the diligent use of the outward means. Those are the three things that he gives us to escape his wrath and curse. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. He gives faith as a gift. Any question on those concepts there? Yes, Linda. Uh, I think in I think the way the modern term is used, yes, there's a difference between joy and happiness. But I think traditionally, happiness used to be more substantive. So it used to be happiness and joy were almost simul uh, synonyms. But today, it's sort of like happy is more frothy. You know, I'm just kind of giddy and happy. Whereas joy is this deep-seated peace and contentment. But that's why they used to use happy. Yeah, good question. Okay. Let's see here. Why isn't this working? I must have hit something. Hmm. Well, let me just close this out. And I will start again. Okay, can you see that? Yeah. Rapid. There we go. Some deny that God chooses people to faith. They say it depends on free will. Yes, he might choose the end. I grant that to you. He'll choose those who are saved. But it's dependent upon the free will of the person choosing Christ. 
So I don't know how they can get around that with this ecclesiastical gymnastics, but they deny that God chooses people to faith. That depends upon free will. But of course, his purpose respects partaking of grace here and glory hereafter. So again, to repeat, it's not just that he ordains or preordains the end, salvation. He also predestines or preordains the means to the end. Grace, faith, repentance, the outward and ordinary means. And so these are inseparably connected and cannot in any way be detached. So the Arminian who claims, okay, I give it to you there. Ephesians 1, yes, predestined is there. I have to acknowledge that. But while God, will might, while God predestines the end, man determines the means to the end, so ultimately it all rests upon man at the end of the day. And what we're saying is that God ordains not only the end, salvation, but he ordains the actual means, the steps to that end. The decree deals with faith, the means, as well as salvation, the end. And somebody will say, well, why are there so many warnings in Scripture? Why are there so many exhortations in Scripture? Because if God exhorts and warns, doesn't that mean that there's a possibility of the elect even falling away from salvation? No. No. That's not a necessary implication. Just because God exhorts and warns doesn't mean that somehow we can fall away if he's saved us. What it means is he's ordained the warning and the exhortation as one of the means to keep his people. So when we we look at true faith, we say that true saving faith not only embraces the promises, which it does, but it also trembles at the threats. Why does true faith tremble at the threat? Well, because it truly believes that God means what he says. And if God gives a threat or a warning or a caution, true faith will take that to heart, and that's one of the means he uses to keep us in the way. So those who would conclude that simply because God warns or exhorts means that we can fall away, they're in error. That does not logically follow. We talked about the drunkard who was driving, and because there's a law, and because he was unable to fulfill the law, he shouldn't be culpable. No, the law still applies. You're still culpable, even though you can't obey it. Was there a question, Sue? So then, man does not really have to be He does. He does. I'm sorry. No, you're, you're right, and this is, this is exactly what the prevailing view is. Yes. And, and we are in the minority today, sadly. I think it's sad. Um, the prevailing view is, well, if God is sovereign, man can't be responsible. If man is responsible, God can't be sovereign. It's got to be one or the other. And what we're saying is, no, the Bible teaches both. And even though you and I can't fully understand how both of those things can hold at the same time, God can certainly do it. He is sovereign. He ordains everything you do. And yet you do it freely. And if you can figure that out, then he's not worthy of worship. I can't figure it out. I don't know. Vody Bakum. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. 
That's what the Bible teaches. And the problem is, is that ministers, well-meaning, I suppose, they feel like they're going to put themselves in a box, and so they're unwilling to say, I don't know, so they'll choose one or the other. And we can't. It's a balancing act. It's a harmonious act. There's perfect harmony between God's sovereignty in ordaining whatsoever comes to pass, even the fact that you're sitting in that chair this morning, and your responsibility to obey him, love him, choose him, worship him. There is perfect harmony in those two things. And that is one of the ultimate questions. I don't have any idea how that works. Well, there's always been a rift from the beginning. There's always been a rift. But there was a huge rift at the Synod of Dort, where the Arminians kind of rose up. Jacob Arminius was a reformed man. And yet he began to question some of these things. And so he wrote down some statements kind of questioning God's sovereignty, human responsibility, and saying, I can't figure this out. It doesn't seem right to me. And his followers kind of ran with it. And they were called the Remonstrants. And they raised these questions, and so they called this big church council, and they dealt with the Arminian threat. But ever since then, it's been gaining ground. And it is the prevailing view in evangelicalism today, sadly. Bruce? And I think, but logically, if you, if you connect dots between sovereignty, election, and limited atonement, you can't come up with any other conclusion than where we Calvinists are. The mindset is if we would say that. <laughs> I mean, it seems that way, but they do come up with different conclusions. You're right. Um, well, when they finally think it through, I always maintain that you finally have that gray hair. <laughs> the mindset is one of you put those pieces together. Sure. You can't come up with any other conclusion if you if you challenge yourself to think it through. I think you're right, and I you know, God is a rational God. He's not illogical, and so you're right. Logic, if we just sit down and work our way through, logically it makes sense. But there's some, it's, it's just disconcerting to think that he ordains everything. I mean, even the slightest detail, the number of hairs on my head. And yet somehow, it, it, I'm, I'm responsible. How can that be? And we just can't, some people just can't live with that tension. I would call it harmony, but they would call it tension. So, Mark, did you want to? I was just going to say, I think you're correct that it's always been that way. Because look at Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God. And, and when we ask this question, we too want to be like God. And this is where we have to look at the answer to Job. Who are you? Were you there? That's right. Said the waters get to this point no further. Right. Yeah. That's where we have this tension of a personal God, yet infinite and eternal God that we cannot can't comprehend it. You're exactly right. And I think those statements in Job that you raise are a perfect illustration that God never answered his question. He didn't tell him why. He just basically said, I am sovereign, and that's enough for you to know, you know. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? That's exactly right. Linda? Responsibility is something we can observe versus 
Yeah. So it's, we, we work it out. We're responsible to work out our salvation, and it's God working in us. Yeah. Ward? Sitting there with Lewis and interacting the story, of course, it's Lewis. If you're in the story, if you're one of the characters, it's you know, the white witch and characters that do it. Right. And usually our objection to that is, well, wait, I'm much more than a character on the page, but also God is much more than Lewis writing the novel. So that's right. That's, that's always a, that's a really good illustration. I've always enjoyed that one too. Yeah, that's very helpful. God promises to give us what we need to perform the duties needed to escape his wrath and curse. That's the wonderful thing. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So right there, I'm the one walking. I'm the one trying to obey, but it's his spirit within me enabling me, as Linda said. In the experience of the sinner... Effectual calling, then, precedes saving faith and genuine repentance. It's this idea that when the gospel call goes forth, not everybody responds in true faith. We know that. Two people can be in the same service. One can walk out and say, wow, I'm converted. That sermon was awesome. And the other one can say, that guy spoke too long. It was boring. What's the difference? Well, one's an effectual call. The Spirit made it effective in the life of the one. So the benefits of redemption are applied to the soul, which is then regenerated and united to Christ. The miracle of grace. Conversion, or the actual turning to God in Christ for salvation, is the fruit of effectual calling. So we we typically can distinguish between regeneration and conversion. Regeneration is the inward renewal of the heart. The Spirit just does it immediately by His sovereign power. Conversion is the sinner turning from sin and turning toward Christ in faith. That's what we see, conversion. Does that make sense, that distinction? Inward, outward? Okay, so typically we distinguish between those two. So if you say somebody was converted, what we would say with those technical terms is that person repented, we can see him turning from his sin, and he's trusting in Christ. He's professing his faith. That's conversion. In conversion, the believing soul is active in both faith and repentance for the rest of his life, and this faith is the instrument of justification. God takes the righteousness of Christ graciously imputes that to the sinner, and the sinner is enabled to believe and receive that righteousness by faith. It's an instrument. And repentance is the constituent element of sanctification. Every day, every day we repent, because every day we sin. It's a lifestyle, as Luther would say. And these will express themselves in the diligent use of the outward means. The fact that we come to church every single Sunday, well, as many Sundays as we can, that's an expression, hopefully, of true faith and genuine repentance. Because we recognize that God somehow uses these things in a special way to sanctify us, to keep us in the way. Strive to enter through the narrow door, 
For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That's sobering. There is a striving, a godly striving. It's not trusting in our own efforts. It's simply diligently using these means that God's appointed. And it's not easy. Not easy to get up in the morning, get out of bed, get dressed, get the kids ready, get to church. Not easy to pray every day. There's oftentimes I don't want to pray. And the only reason I pray is because God commands it. And there are days that I forget to pray. It's hard. But this is what God uses, and he appoints this for our salvation. Any questions on, on that one? Rob? Um, you having six kids, right? Seven, I thought. <laughs> Yes and yes. I mean, of course, as parents, you're eagerly watching and observing your children and seeing if they're responding in faith, embracing these truths. Does he say, hey, I love Jesus. I, I, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're observing and we're training. They need to be trained, as we'll find. You know, this whole idea of training in the scriptures and catechizing and getting them in worship, training in worship putting them in that sanctuary, as inconvenient as it might sometimes be for the rest, that's okay. We put up with that because we want them to be trained in worship. So these are all ways that we see them growing. And parents primarily and elders secondarily watch and observe, and when they come to the point where they say, look, I want that bread in that cup. I want to profess my faith. Wow, this is fantastic. Yeah, we don't push them. But we don't neglect them either. There's this fine line of kind of gently massaging them into the profession of faith, right? Yeah. Emily? They're almost synonymous. Very good point. Because in our confession, basically, effectual calling is identified as regeneration. Yes, they're almost synonymous, and some people would say they are synonymous. Yeah. It's just that in effectual calling, the idea is there's both the outward call, the preaching of the gospel, and the inward response to that gospel. In regeneration, we're focusing on the inward change of the heart. So if there's any difference, that would be it, that there's this outward call coming in and the effectual call. Yeah. Faith in Jesus Christ, then, in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. So this is the first thing that God requires of us to escape his wrath and curse. Pastor Pilon will look at repentance next week, and then Lord willing, we'll look at the diligent use the following week. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. <clears throat> that describes the righteous or the believer. Whenever scripture talks about the righteous, it doesn't mean that you're somehow more righteous than other people. It simply means that you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. You're clothed in that righteousness and you're a believer. <clears throat> so we live by faith. Our entire lives are lived by faith. 
It is the instrument, as we said, of salvation, and it is the gift of God. This is not something you can do yourself. A dead person cannot believe. A dead person, spiritually speaking, has to be resurrected, spiritually speaking, to have faith. So here's where we would vehemently disagree with our Arminian brothers. They're wrong. Scripture is clear. A dead man cannot believe anything. So there are essentially three acts of faith, only one of which is the essence of saving faith. There is assent. We looked at this earlier, I think, and we were looking at the confession. It says, I believe there's a Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. That's faith. You believe he was there. But of course, this is the faith of devils, and they tremble. That's not saving. That's not the essence of saving faith. Assurance. Now, this is a wonderful thing, and it says, I believe Christ died for me, and I believe and am hopeful that I'll be saved. I know that I'll be saved. And yet, of course, not all believers have assurance. That's a reflective act of faith. Faith receives Christ, clings to Christ, assurance, looks back on the self and sees you clinging to Christ. That's a reflective act. That's not of the essence of saving faith. Acceptance says, I take Christ in all of his offices to be mine. I'm weak. I'm often doubting. I'm struggling. But I'm looking at Christ. That's saving faith. And that belongs to all believers at all times. So those three acts of faith, only one of which is essential to saving faith. So the faith of a believer, he receives and he rests upon Christ and his righteousness offered in the gospel. Or as, as Piper would tell us, he treasures Christ. I think that's a good word. You know, in our day and age, faith has been stretched and there's all kinds of misunderstandings. So he gets at the heart of it. You treasure Christ. The pearl of great price. <clears throat> it's a saving grace, meaning that it's a gift from the Lord who grants it as an instrument to receive Christ in the heart of the sinner, Christ's spirit implants God's seed and produces the grace of faith. It has been granted to you, says Paul, for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for him. But belief given to you. It's a gift. If you have faith, thank God for it. You didn't do anything to get it. You didn't do anything to produce it. It's a gift. Any questions on that? Sue? Well, I think the dead man can probably make that makes the most sense. But when you're talking to, you know, yeah. they'll say, well, I understand God gives you the faith, but I have to accept it. That's what they say. Yeah, well, tell me the chapter and verse on that one, because it doesn't say that. I mean, that's their position. Oh, I know. And, and I think... Right. And, and because that's how we see it from a human perspective, yes, you have to take it, right? You have to receive the gospel. But if the, we trust scripture, and if a dead man can't do anything, there needs to be regeneration or the effectual call first. You have to become alive before you can take or receive anything. You'll believe. 
He enables you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Bruce. My epiphany was, was right up there in Christ's alone. Christ, Christ Yeah, that's a good point. Which ultimately, is the slippery slope of orthodoxy, of Catholicism, of every other works related yeah. religion. And ultimately, for me, I'm staring at my Arminian face in the mirror and saying, you know what? I'm worshiping a different God. I believe in different gods. And that's heresy. Yeah. And so, bang, I, that's. Yeah, that's a very good point, Bruce. And and ultimately, it does rob God of his glory, and that's the difficulty. So what we would say, and again, I don't want to be too harsh, because I do believe that there are many, many Arminians who are sincere Christians, who love the Lord, you know? Many of us probably come out of that, and we were sincere in our faith. But it is a misguided faith, and no Arminian should ever be in the pulpit until they figure this out. Because as Jesus said to Nicodemus, are you the teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? Get out of the pulpit until you can figure them out. So, um, so the Spirit generates faith ordinarily through God's inspired word. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It was Lydia who heard Paul preach, and it was then that the Lord opened her heart. So there you have the effectual call that Emily asked earlier. There's the word coming, the outward call, and then God opens the heart and the inward response. That's the effectual call. Rob? And his righteousness. So I think, is there some confusion about uh, accepting and receiving? And can you speak to that? I don't think so. No. I think they're pretty much synonymous. Okay, so our, like our Armenian brothers would say, well, I, mean, I have an ex- whatever And again, I have the utmost respect, for example, for Billy Graham, a tremendous instrument in God's hands. He'll be way up front when we get to heaven, I'm convinced. But because of the way that somehow sometimes he would present it, yeah, you have to accept, you have to walk down the aisle and come down here in order to be saved. And so the emphasis was on the walking down the aisle. Rather than, like in the first great awakening, the emphasis is upon God's spirit is so sovereign that you better pray and hope that he changes your heart. I want you to sit there and pray that God would change your heart, if you can. And so the emphasis there is on God's sovereignty or man's responsibility. Both are true, but it's a matter of emphasis. So I think that probably led into some of it. With that emphasis, and it kind of fed into the whole Arminian idea... Uh, Carrie? I was just going to say, even when we come to the foot of the cross, we're, we still 
So it's either going to be me or God that makes that decision. Like right. I'm trying to say it's both. But if I'm in charge of this, then I'm I'm the one that's sovereign. And so I don't know, it's just like that clinging to right. I have control of this. Right. Instead of the surrender and the submission. Right. And that one song uh, is Ray's favorite, uh, How Awesome Is This Place, you know. And in there is something like, why was I invited to the feast when so many others were left out? Who knows? But you were invited. <laughs> That's the point, right? God invited you and drew you. Nobody can come to Christ unless God draws him. children who are raised in the church who walk away from the faith or but the bible seems to teach that they're going to be held more accountable Mm -hmm. for not turning yet god didn't open their heart so how would you communicate like i've been in communication with someone in that position and um and you know trying to navigate that conversation and say the right word not easy But it's interesting that Jesus responded to the question, why did these worshipers get slaughtered by Pilate? He didn't really answer the question. He said, well, it's not because there were worse sinners than you, but if you don't repent, you're going to likewise perish. That was kind of a politically incorrect statement, I think, but it's true. So an unbeliever cannot understand these things. He will not accept these things. 1 Corinthians 2.14. So I think the one thing we can do is just present the word. I didn't write the mail. I'm just delivering it. This is what the Bible says. Sure. Sure. And try to do it in a winsome way. Yeah. Not in a judgmental way, but winsomely say, look, you've been given so many opportunities. You've been privileged with membership in the church. You are a non-communicant member, by the way. So, you know, this is a great privilege and responsibility, but it's a huge responsibility. And... um, yeah, we baptize our children in hopes that God will draw them to Christ through the ordinary means, but what we're doing at that point is also placing upon him a double responsibility. They're not only sinful in Adam, but then if they turn away from their baptism, it's doubly cursed. In community group last night, they mentioned, I was talking about like, your children and how they know um, when they're saved. Um, Mark had said that Dennis Dissel had said that when a child understands the gravity of their sin, which I thought was so true and awesome to hear because you know when your kid fears the consequence mm-hmm. of their sin and when they actually feel the weight of their sin. Yeah, I mean, again, every child's different. And some children have a far more sensitive conscience than others. So you can't, you cannot have an absolute rule like, hey, child number one, boy, they really felt the gravity of their sin. You don't even think about it. You can sin with impunity. And maybe that person, <laughs> that child is not quite as sensitive, but they're feeling it. So it's just hard. You cannot see the heart. We take them at their word. 
as a parent, you know some of their weaknesses and sins, and you try to curb that. You train their behavior, you expose them to the gospel, and you pray like crazy that God will change their heart. You know, there are people that have professed their faith on that stage who are hypocrites. There is no perfect church. And I hate to say that. Maybe it's me. I hope it's not. But I'm just saying, so we pray and recognize God's sovereignty that it's only by his grace that any of us can be kept or brought into the kingdom. Oh, boy. Okay. It's not produced merely by the influence of outward means. It's not just the word. So you can't just say, I had him in church. You know, it's God who does this miracle of grace. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, there's the outward call, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, there's the inward call. It takes both. Inward and outward, effectual call. And so we pray. That's God's responsibility. The Spirit works ordinarily through the Word as the divinely appointed means of salvation. And this progressive sanctification is advanced inwardly by faith, outwardly by the Word, sacraments, and prayer. Vitally important, these outward means. God can save us. He might, you might be in a desert. I always get the question, what if I'm on a desert island somewhere? Okay. Well... The bottle comes up to the shore, you get the little gospel tract, you're saved, and he'll save you. There's no church, there's no sacrament, but he'll save you. But see, I think that the exception proves the rule. That's the exception. And we know it's an exception. If you're a Christian, you want to associate and affiliate with the body of Christ, and you sense that you're missing something if you're not in church. I hope you do. Whatever promotes sanctification strengthens, increases, nourishes faith, which is its root. And we embrace the whole word of God because it comes to us with divine authority. It is God's word. And so as we said, and I I hate to keep quoting it, but as he says, I don't write the mail, I deliver it. He wrote the mail. He's the one who wrote this. All we do is say, okay, Lord, I don't fully understand it, but you wrote it. It's divine authority. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So there we have it. That word that we read and preach and meditate upon is the word of God. Any questions? I'm going to stop at this slide. Anybody have any questions or comments? Mark? heard was the, the sinner's prayer, you know, uh, you got to say the sinner's prayer. Like, like, I never really hear that amongst Presbyterians, Reformed people. Is that maybe highlighting the, the, the difference in, in the sinner's prayer kind of emphasizes I'm choosing God, right? Whereas, Nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. <clears throat> Matter of fact, you should pray as a sinner. Repentance, that is. That's the only prayer that God will accept from a sinner. No, nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. You need to pray that prayer. 
let's just understand that the only reason you'll pray that prayer is because God has changed your heart. And I think, again, it's not wrong to have people bow their heads or raise their hands or pray the prayer. That's not wrong. But it's a matter of emphasis. What happens is, as we talked earlier, as Carrie was saying, you become so accustomed to, well, it has to be that way. You've got to come down the aisle if you want to be saved. Well, robbing God of his glory. God is the one who gave you the impetus to get up out of your seat and walk down that aisle. And so I think that has to be taught so that we trust in his sovereignty and his sovereign grace. Melissa? Yeah, exactly. They rely on Christ. And the prayer is all important. It's very important. That's the expression of faith, which is the gift that he gave you, right? So we always need to give God the glory. Jim? The speaking uh, emphasis, I think, you know, common, so many common criticisms of God's choosing, not our accepting our choosing, is that it's simply not fair. But if I want the gospel and God doesn't pick me, which is getting that very backwards, right? Because if we don't want the gospel, we don't want it. And we're unregenerate. Right. We crave it. We don't yearn for it because God has done that work. And really, the better distinction is it's not fair that any of us are saved. It's dramatically unfair because no one deserves it. But the kingdom of God is a democracy. Come on, you can be all you want to be. It's a land of opportunity, right? And I think the same point, too, uh, yeah, we can. These things are hard to understand. We can't comprehend right. God. It's incredible that we can apprehend. Absolutely. To find a point that, that we can understand any of this is tremendous. That's right. That's a very good point. Well said. And if you ever find somebody who says, oh, I lost my faith, well, then you can say, you never had faith. Right. That's the point. Yeah. It's all that nobody wants to hear that. That's exactly right. And it gets back to the point that I think Carrie might have made that we want to be in control. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are sovereign. And we are delighted in your sovereign goodness and grace and mercy. We have been the recipients of these wonderful traits of yours. Not that we deserve them, but you are pleased to give them. So we ask that you'll prepare us for worship that we might come before you and ascribe worth to your great and gracious name, and that Jesus might be exalted in our midst. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.